This is a special edition of Ophthalmology Off the Grid on COVID-19. Here are your hosts, Drs. Gary Wirtz and Blake Williamson. So it looks like we are officially live kicking off our first Ophthalmology Off the Grid uh, video webinar. Um, I wish it were under different times, different circumstances, but uh, here we are. You know, it's it's COVID-19. We're all uh, trying to figure out what to do. We're trying to figure out how to protect ourselves and our families. Um, and Blake Williamson and myself um, have, de have decided to try to bring a group of ophthalmologists together. Um, that going through this um, together is easier. And uh, in, in light of that, I just want to say to all the ophthalmologists who are tuning in or other folks, um, the ophthalmologists in Asia and Europe, uh, Australia, across the world, you all are in our thoughts and prayers, and we're going to get through this together. So uh, I'm going to kick it over to Blake to get a little bit of an introduction on what we're going to be talking about today. Thanks a lot, Gary. I appreciate it. And uh, this has been, I agree, a very important series. And what we really want this to be for our listeners and those who are watching this around the world is just kind of a, a, almost like a command center for information. Uh, we want this to be a meeting place. We want to do this routinely. We've already done, you know, uh, I think three of these now, and we're going to continue to do so. With, uh, with this uh, episode, um, we thought it'd be really powerful to speak to some of our colleagues around the world uh, who uh, have tested COVID positive um, and hear from them because sometimes it, it, these things can seem kind of foreign to you. It's almost like this existential threat until it happens to someone you know or to one of your colleagues. So we thought it'd be great to speak to uh, three such ophthalmologists. Uh, we have Dr. Gino Gabinelli, we have Dr. Alan Kazarski, and we have Dr. Matthew Kruger. Um, and I thought that what we'd first do is just maybe just go around uh, to, to you three to introduce yourselves and where you practice. Um, uh, let's start with you, Gina. Um, hi. Okay. Thanks, Blake. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. I practice uh, anterior segment, cataract and cornea. Our group has uh, 16 doctors. The group's called Georgia Eye Partners. Um, and, you know, like, I think like all other practices we've completely shut down, elective surgery, et cetera. Um, so, and I got sick a couple of weeks ago, halfway through the day, saw patients in the morning, felt fine, got a fever at lunchtime, you know, realized something was up, went home, um, basically fever, dry cough and aches for 48 hours and then started feeling better. So, uh, so got lucky. So, uh, but, and we've got a decent number of cases here in Atlanta. And Alan, you're in, you're in uh, Atlanta as well, I think, right? Yes, I could uh, say ditto to Gene, anterior segment specialist from Atlanta, uh, 35 ophthalmologists in our group. And I was on Delta on my way to Honduras when I started coughing. And uh, within 24 hours, I suspected what I might have and made a 24-hour visit to Honduras and we do indeed have a lot of affected people here. What about you, Matt? So I live in Denver, Colorado. I'm in a small three-person private practice. I do cataract and refractive surgery. We decided last Sunday night to close the practice to all but urgent care patients. And then um, Monday, we, I saw a couple emergency patients. And then Tuesday morning, I woke up with cold symptoms. But I had a kind of a dull headache, which I don't normally have. And, that's what pushed me to go ahead and get tested um, that day. Yeah. So, Gino, walk us through 
um, you know, when you first thought something was up, you know, kind of what the, the little, the, the, the voice in the back of your head, you know, kind of the conversation you were having with yourself, did you think it was COVID or did you think it might just be something else? And, and walk us through, you know, how you ended up getting tested because a lot of times people are, are relatively asymptomatic, maybe don't necessarily have a fever. And in that case, they can't get tested. Yeah. So, um, great point. I, well, as I said, I was, I had been on vacation. I was out in Colorado skiing, got back Monday night, did surgery all day Tuesday, clinic all day Wednesday morning, and at lunchtime, sat down at my desk, and it hit me pretty suddenly, chills, fever, aches. I knew something was going on, you know, corona or something else, so I just went home immediately, continued to feel bad for 24 hours, got tested the next day in our emergency room at the hospital, flu swab negative, times two and uh, got tested. It's complicated. That test was subsequently lost. <laughs> and then the next Monday, four or five, four days later, I got tested at an Emory employee testing site at Emory University. And that test took 48 hours to come back. So, um, so testing is very limited here in Atlanta. I will say that I, I was just volunteering at our, at our, ER this morning, today, because I'm past the CDC guidelines now of recovery. And essentially, folks with classic symptoms are just getting sent home to self-isolate. Folks who are sick enough to be admitted are getting tested. So, so I, was, I was lucky to get tested, and I was lucky that my symptoms were mild and resolved really completely after about three or four days. So, and, and Alan, were you febrile whenever you got back from Honduras or did, were you already feeling better by then or what was your course? It's very interesting. I had a mild dry cough on a Sunday three weeks ago. And by Monday, fever, myalgias, flu-like, very mild. Came back from Honduras on Tuesday, the next day was tested. And by Wednesday, I was afebrile. All the symptoms had gone away. Um, again, just like Gene, lots of trouble getting the laboratory result. They called me at 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I was completely well, doing fine. And they said, your result is positive. And I said, you... <laughs> Actually, <laughs> uh, I said, you've got to be kidding me. I'm completely well. I'm past this. But this was way too easy. You know, this was just way, way too easy. And meanwhile, I was in a van with a dozen people on Sunday in Honduras, on Monday morning in Honduras, tons of exposure of other people. And... Um, the thread on Karenet and elsewhere was very interesting because uh, coincidentally, we had all taken Plaquenil, anti-malaria for the Honduras trip and had the world, I had the world's easiest illness that I obviously went to Honduras with, but none of those 12, 10 of whom were on Plaquenil have developed symptoms or tested positive. That's interesting. That's because we'll talk, we'll get to that in just a little bit because I'm curious what medications are we're on. Matt, what about you? Did you, uh, um, were your symptoms, uh, uh, how long did they last and, and sort of what was that process like? So I'm on day seven and I'm still symptomatic. Uh, the first day I developed 
cough and a little runny nose and sore throat. That evening I became febrile and I had about 24 hours of fevers and chills, um, all accompanied by a headache, which lasted about three days. And then by day four, I've been feeling pretty good, but I've had substernal chest pain on and off, even have a touch today. So as, at day seven now, um, it's at, or six days since I was diagnosed, I've had a little bit of chest pain today and then a little bit of runny nose. So I'm not totally through it, but it's um, you know, a scale of one to 10. It's like 0.5 now in terms of symptoms. It's interesting, Gary, because, you know, they kind of tell you that when you're younger, obviously, you know, Matthew, uh, for those who are watching, is younger, uh, and uh, he's, he's still having some of these symptoms. It's interesting that, that it's not always what they tell you in the media. Younger people can still get sick, and, and, and folks over 60 can have very mild symptoms. Yeah, that's, that is, I think, sort of um, almost a dangerous um, colloquialism that's out there. And I think the data supports that older folks do have rougher time in general, but you know, that's talking about a population. There's wide variability individually that as we can see right here um, in our small sample of three. Um, I'm just curious and I'll, and this, this can be uh, to any of you, but I guess I'll start, start with, uh, with Matt. What has it been like being a patient? You know, as a physician, you know, we're, we're usually on the other side of that equation. Um, have you been a good patient so far? What has that process been like? I've basically been just isolating at home, um, trying to stay away from people. Um, but it's a little anxiety provoking because people send you these things saying, oh, this patient did well for five days, then they went to the ICU and died. Um, that's so nice. That, that's a nice little bit of anxiety for me, for sure. Um, but I've had a pretty mild case and I, I'm healthy. I have no pre-existing conditions. And so I figure I'll be in the 99% that do well. But I've seen enough like little case reports on the internet or in the news that scare you enough or give pause at least to be like, ooh, is this going to be me in the ICU uh, next week? Right, right. Um, Alan, how have, you, how have you been as a patient? And, and are you in the house by yourself? Are you isolated from the rest of your family? How are they dealing with this? Well, they don't like being quarantined. They don't like being quarantined but their quarantine officially ends today. And my two weeks per the WHO recommendation ends on Wednesday. Um, there is quite a bit of difference between the two CDC recommendations versus the WHO as far as when you come out of isolation. But isolation is no fun, it's depressing, it's melancholy, and on one hand, you feel extremely lucky and fortunate that you're not one of the bad cases. Um, it makes you even more melancholy sometimes to know that there are people 10, 20, 40 years younger than you are that are getting the bad stuff. But for the most part, we're pretty lucky and getting the easy version of this disease. Alan, Phil Hoops, uh, Phil Hoops is on the, the chat here. We have a lot of live listeners. He said he was just with you on that trip to Honduras 14 days ago, and he's so happy that you're doing better. I don't know if you can see the messages, but Phil sent, sent you a shout out. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a phenomenal um, group, phenomenal group that I took off after 24 hours, but they did a record number of cataract cases in Honduras. We, we've and also got uh, none of the group to our knowledge has gotten sick. 
That's fantastic. We also have, it uh, looks like Bill Trattler is on here watching. So we'll say hi to Bill and Kathleen McCabe is on here as well. Um, you know, we're trying to get, if you have any specific questions that you guys would like to ask, you know, send those in to us because we, uh, we really want to make this as interactive as possible. And, and also, you know, sort of be a window into these guys life right now who have been isolated and probably needing a little bit of an interaction. So uh, Gino, a question for you. How have you been as a patient and, and how has your family been, or if, if you have folks that live with you, how are they taking to the quarantine situation? Right. So um, it's interesting. I was on vacation uh, ski trip with my whole family. So all three of my kids and my wife were really exposed to me a lot for three or four days preceding me getting sick. We're empty nesters. So the kids are all back in their universe and they've all quarantined and fortunately have been healthy, a little bit of scratchy throat, but they, they could be some of these people in their twenties that maybe they did get it and they're asymptomatic and asymptomatic carriers. So they quarantined when I became positive. Um, my wife, Nancy has been a trooper. And uh, so it was uh, the first 72 hours were pretty rough. I was, I was febrile, real achy. And she was leaving bowls of cereal outside the door to my, to the guest room on the floor. <laughs> so, uh, but I think, you know, like Alan said, very fortunate to have had a mild case. I will say that like at our local hospital, uh, I know of some young employees that are young and healthy that are actually currently in the ICU. So this, even though it, it generally follows the age guidelines, there's, there's one out of whatever it is, a couple hundred people um, in that young age group that actually get the real bad disease deep in their lungs and don't do well. So this is, you know, I, my, this is just my opinion here. I think this thing is, is real, very serious, and it's going to get worse in America before it gets better. Yeah, Bill, Bill Trailer has a uh, question. Uh, the question is, um, does any, has anyone experienced anosmia or a decreased sense of smell and taste? Um, Matt, I think you've had some experience with that. Yeah, I've definitely had the uh, changed sense of taste. Maybe it was from the zinc I was taking, but I definitely cannot smell anything. We have a three-year-old and I'm like, I have to check his diapers now uh, after nap time. Uh, other ways than smelling, which I would have done in the past. So um, I've, I, I actually tested different strong smells today and I can smell nothing. Um, so I'm hoping it comes back. Alan, did you lose smell? I didn't lose smell for the first seven or 10 days way after the rest. I had a little bit of a GI queasiness that I was not, I wasn't on any medications that were GI toxic. And apparently not just the taste issues, but some GI upset is a fairly common thing with the COVID-19. And Gary, I think it's, I think it's, um, you know, if you look at the, the, uh, the chat, you know, we have a lot of our colleagues who, who are not worried about themselves. They're worried about family members. You have Alice uh, Epitropoulos here, who's, you know, saying that her brother and cousin, they were, they were in the ICU, uh, have COVID-19 after they are feeling better. Do you think it is safe to get around our parents who are 85 years old? What would, what, would, what would the panelists have to say about that? I mean, at what point can you get around your folks if they're, if they're older? And similarly, Kathy McCabe says, I, I'm concerned about treating my boys while waiting her own test result. And her boy's 12 years old and has headaches and neither is febrile. So how do you tackle that? I'm, I'm sure both of you have thought about whether you need to start treating your family members, even if they're asymptomatic or symptomatic, and who you can be around and who you can't. 
Um, I think uh, this is Gino. I think Alan mentioned earlier the different guidelines for going back, you know, when you can be back with people. My understanding is that CDC has 72 hours after last fever and one week since symptoms started. I believe Emory here in Atlanta has added on one week since your positive test. And I think Alan maybe knows better than me, but I think the World Health Organization may be two weeks since your symptoms resolved or started. I'm not sure, Alan, you could clarify that. But I, So I don't think there's crystal clear guidelines, but there are three or four sets of parameters. When the, um, when the guidelines were first written a little over a month ago, they assumed that there would be testing. And the initial guidelines were two tests hours apart that were negative that would end your isolation. Well, they amended that a day or two later when they realized that people could not be tested that easily. And it was just three days without symptoms, uh, three days since your last symptom or your last fever would get you out of isolation. I think that is a little non-conservative. And the WHO extends that to two weeks after your most recent fever or symptom, which makes sense. I'm testing myself once a week and uh, just out of interest and out of safety. And one week after my first test, the CD the CDC test was indeterminate. Two virus particles, they were seeing N1 but not N2 components, et cetera, et cetera. So my interpretation is almost gone. Um, I have the opportunity to be tested yet a third time tomorrow, and I think my real green light will be when I test negative, which will be about two weeks after my last symptom. As far as parents, I have an 89-year-old father, and I've forbidden anyone other than one or two caregivers to go in and see him. You know, up in New Jersey, everywhere, it's just way too dangerous. And as, luck, as lucky as we are, folks in their 80s are not going to do well with this illness. Yeah, I think that's, that's been kind of proven, uh, you know, with the data. Uh, Gary, you got something? I was going to yeah. When a lot of people wonder, wonder about treatment and profile. Yeah, yeah I, can, I can sort of speak to that. And, and again, you know, please don't take anything I say as you know, peer-reviewed evidence. I think we're all sort of shooting from the hip here. But I've been trying my best to look at the mechanism of action as, as to how this virus is impacting kids differently than older folks and adults. I'll, I'll include myself in that. And it really looks like interferon gamma is uh, a real uh, key here. Uh, interferon gamma is part of our TH1 system, if we can remember back from our medical school days, and I had to sort of relearn this quickly. But, you know, interferon gamma is sort of that, um, that cytokine that helps uh, stop viral replication. And for whatever reason, kids seem to have an earlier response with their interferon gamma TH1 system to the virus. And so they are not getting uh, as sick in general. They're, they're developing um, very few symptoms, and they're clearing this very, very quickly. So in older folks, for, for reasons that are still unclear, this seems to be blocking something called STAT1 proteins that, that really interfere 
with the interferon gamma signaling process. So what happens, the virus continues to, to uh, go on, you know, making tons and tons of copies, reproducing itself until a severe viremia um, occurs in some folks. And that's when the cytokine storm happens and your body uh, sort of has this overabundant exuberant reaction to the virus. And I think that's when we're getting into these problems with um, you know, ARDS and pneumonitis. And so some of the questions about, um, should we be putting our, our kids on Plaquenil or younger, younger um, people in the house? You know, this again, this is just me. I don't think so. I think our kids are generally um, going to probably uh, weather this quite, um, quite well and will develop some immunity from it if they do get it. Um, uh, also, I think that there's gonna be a severe Plaquenil shortage. Um, I'm not taking it prophylactically. Um, and in Kentucky, we actually can't prescribe Plaquenil because there's such a shortage. Um, you have to, uh, it has to come from an infectious disease doctor at this point. Um, so have you guys seen Plaquenil shortages in your areas? Blake, I'm curious. Uh, no, we, uh, we had, we got some like a week, a week ago though. I don't, I don't know what it's like now. Um, um, but I'd be curious, it, it, you know, it, I'd, I'd love to know what the treatment course for our, our three uh, doctors are. I mean, Matt, what are you taking right now? What were you taking? What are you taking now? So under the, uh, from advice from Bill Trattler, I took 400 BID for one day, Tuesday night and uh, Wednesday morning. And then I finished a five day course uh, at 200 BID. Uh, last dose was this morning. So do you feel any better or do you, I mean, it's hard to know. Um, but I mean, I did, you know, my symptoms abated the next day after starting the course, but it's hard to know if that was um, caused by the drug or not. And you're not taking any zinc or azithromycin or anything like that? I got some Zycam. Most of the zinc was sold out. Um, and so I got some Zycam at the uh, Walgreens and I was taking that as well, which is about 25 milligrams a day um, that I've been doing since the beginning. Although I, last dose was this morning. How about you, Gino? What, 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 what did you start taking when you started to feel bad and what are you on now? Yeah, so um, minimalist approach here. The, the first night I got sick, when I came home from work, I was pretty achy and pretty uncomfortable with fever. I took three Advil and that was all I've taken the entire time. In, in retrospect now, reading about this, there is some evidence I think that ibuprofen is, is not necessarily uh, the best one to take and that acetaminophen, Tylenol is better for fighting fever. But that was all I took and, and kind of two or three days later felt pretty much back to normal. Alan? Well, I, um, when you get to the fork in the road, take it. I was already on Plaquenil 400 milligrams once a week and I continued that. Uh, Atlanta, I don't think you can find any Plaquenil or any kind of chloroquine compound in Atlanta if you wanted to. So I took the rest of my Plaquenil and just, you know, just stored it. And if anyone in the family is going to get sick, I would probably start them on daily Plaquenil, knowing that they may not be able to get it from any place else. But under ideal conditions from everything that I read, I would probably want to be on daily Plaquenil for the first couple of days after developing symptoms. Uh, Shaq Tobar uh, just asked a question. When will your plasma be ready for sharing with your friends? Uh, because there has been actually some, some studies have shown that convalescent serum is actually helping. So are you guys ready to, for a spike in the arm? 
so I have one, we'll, we'll keep a little humor going here. My college buddies texted that my plasma is for sale and the recipient will be immune from COVID, but they will become a slower golfer. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think they'll take that. I think they'll take that. <laughs> hey, Gino, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned something interesting uh, that, that you're actually uh, being called back in uh, to the front lines and treating some of these COVID patients because you've already had COVID. Uh, you would think that perhaps there's an immunity, but I've also read things that perhaps there's, that's not necessarily the case and you could potentially get reinfected. Obviously you've looked into that. Can you talk about that? Well, I've asked two people, the epidemiologist here at Emory and an infectious disease specialist, and both feel that, you know, the answer is we don't know. We, we really, we don't have an antibody test, so we're not sure. But behaving like a lot of other viruses that, a body of somebody is probably full of antibodies if they've just had it. So the high likelihood is that we're immune, but nobody knows for sure. The reason I got that idea, interestingly, was talking to a, a friend and colleague who's in Milan, Italy. He's an ophthalmologist. He's closed down his private office and he's been volunteering in the ICU at night so the intensivist can get some sleep. So, you know, Italy, I, I hope, you know, I pray for Italy. They're in a tough spot and I hope we don't get as bad as they are, but we sure as well, we could. Yeah, speaking on that, um, looking at the graphs, you know, we for a while were trending about 11 days behind Italy in terms of our curve. And then a couple of days ago, it looks like we were about six days behind in terms of a total case prevalence. And then as of today, we're like three or four days behind. We're actually, I think, uh, third in the world with number of active cases. So. Uh, I think we are we are trending to be uh, Italy part two, uh, which is something that is really terrifying. And you know, more maybe even more terrifying is if you know thinking of me being in the ICU managing some of the ventilator settings. And we've kind of had some some jokes about that. But uh, if that comes to pass, that is something that I think um, is is sort of a sign of the apocalypse. Uh, you know, all joking aside, that that's something that could happen. Um, Matt, when you're when you're ready and you're you're recovered, I mean, could you see yourself going in and, and taking care of patients again? I'd be happy with whatever they allow me to do or um, to volunteer because it is nice to be immune and not have to worry about getting it again. I'm not worried about getting it a second time, uh, personally, but no, I'd be happy to. They they've called for um, uh, panels of people who are willing to volunteer in Denver at the local hospital, Rose Hospital, and so I, I signed myself up to do that. Excellent. So, so, Alan, can you uh, uh, talk a little bit about what you guys are, are doing with your practices? Uh, I'd be curious to know, you know, several states have mandated shutdowns um, where, the, you know, they can't do any elective procedures or see patients to a certain, until a certain time. Uh, I'm just kind of curious how each of y'all's practices, what, what, you, what you're doing with employees and, and when sort of your start back date is and all that. We had a lot of discussion in our practice, a large practice with, I think we're almost 40 doctors in our practice, whether we were gonna shut down or not. And listening to everything that we could listen to, it became very obvious that other than emergencies, we were gonna close the practice. And we closed the practice last week. We're closing the practice this week, and we're gonna make a decision on what we're going to do next week. The idea 
in ophthalmology of collecting the most vulnerable people in our offices and not knowing who's going to give what disease to whom. Coming in for an eye exam and leaving with COVID is such a bad deal for so many of those that particularly in our community and now, it was just a question of doing no harm. So we, we just closed down this week, last week, and I guess we were in a very generous mood and we sort of kept our employees and we're keeping them uh, most all of their uh, salary and just trying to do the right thing. But obviously you can't go on forever doing this, but for two weeks, we're certainly able to do it. What about you, Gino? Because you're in a, uh, as I understand it, iSouth Partners, it's a private equity backed group that you're in. Uh, a lot of, there's a lot of questions around how's private equity um, sort of responding to this. We know that they're about, you know, wanting to, to uh, get a return, you know, after a certain number of years. I'd be curious how they've, how they've been, uh, how they've been to deal with during these times. Yeah, so great, great question. And uh, I'll share our experience is we've had, as Alan suggested, they had, we had several meetings with the partners and, and I Southwide, uh, for, for those listening, were approximately 100 ophthalmologists in five southeastern states um, and in about 15 different practices. So uh, what we have decided, uh, obviously no elective surgery, no cataract, no LASIK. We are seeing urgent and emergent only we divided the doctors up into two groups of people, one that would be worker doctors and one that would be on sabbatical. Um, I'm, I'm in the sabbatical group and, and we all agreed to take zero salary for a while until this thing clears up. The, the group that is working is you know seeing emergencies. We saw, I think about 15 patients today, corneal ulcers, some bad glaucoma patients, things like that. Um, we have also instituted a very robust telemedicine program. Um, two doctors spearheaded that along with uh, one of our professional staff. And we have text screening. And today we had three doctors doing telemedicine visits. And as you know, the, the restrictions have been relaxed somewhat, but the way we're looking at it is, you know, we want our patients to know that we're thinking of them. We also think it's a good tool to determine who is who is urgent or emergent and who's not. So you get a touch point with the patient. And I think we have a better lens into who needs to be coming into the office for these urgent exams. So beyond that, we, I mentioned the doctors, we did decide to um, furlough about 75% of the staff since we really don't have clinical activities. They keep their benefits, um, but that actually then allows them to get federal unemployment benefits in this short period of time. Um, which is actually better than us paying them a partial salary. And the second thing is we've started a fund. All the doctors are contributing to a relief fund for our least fortunate employees. And interestingly, our Shore Capital, our private equity partner is matching us with, with a fund. So, and we're gonna have that administered, not by one of the doctors, but by a couple of our administrative people. And it's not gonna be for everybody, but it's gonna be for the single mother with two children who is struggling to pay rent and get food on her plate. So we're, we are going to make sure that everybody in our family has a roof on their head and food on their plate um, through that mechanism. And, you know, hopefully we're getting back to normal business in two or three months, something like that. 
love that y'all are doing that, Gino, especially in such a big, uh, a big practice. And, and you really got to go through each employee and see what their needs are because they have different needs. Matt, f finishing that question with you, you're in a smaller practice. Um, you know, what are you doing with employees? Also, Gino mentioned telemedicine. Are you, can you comment on if you're thinking about that as well? We had two employees test positive since I tested. And so we appear to have a little mini outbreak in the office. So at this point, only one person's in the office fielding phone calls and an office a few miles away. We'll see any patients that are emergencies. At this point, we're still paying all of our employees, um, even though we're closed this week and next week, at least through April 1st. And we'll have to kind of see we're planning on making a decision, but we'll probably maybe furlough some uh, or cut hours on everybody down to half time or something like that. It's just no one knows, right? That's the anxiety of uh, not knowing what's going to happen the next few weeks. Yeah, actually, just something that came in from Marguerite. Um, and again, I'm so happy that you all are doing so well and, and are weathering the storm uh, physically quite well. But um, some people we need to keep in our thoughts and prayers. Apparently, uh, the head of critical care from Northwell, which is a local healthcare system uh, in the New York area with 27 hospitals, uh, says that there are four ophthalmologists on ventilators uh, right now. So, um, you know, New York, obviously a very hard hit area. I know Audrey uh, Telly Rostov is also on. She's in, in um, Seattle, also very, very hard hit. So I'm curious if she has any comments to make. But um, it's, it's very, um, it's frightening, I think, for a lot of us to think about, um, you know, colleagues um, not doing so well. So we, we know that there's both sides of that equation. And we're, we're so happy that you guys are doing well. Um, there's another question that came in about if, if there's any studies or tests being done on the virus testing the conjunctiva. Um, from my understanding, uh, Rob Samberski is, is sort of the, the guru on that, and they are doing some work on that. But the viral load is sort of um, not as prevalent there. You can isolate the virus from the conjunctiva and tear film, but I think that the, um, the nares in the, in the nasopharyngeal area, you have a higher vi viral load. So I think those are where they're being targeted right now. Alan, would you, given what, what Gary was just talking about, the conjunctiva, I'm still seeing patients. I'm on call today. I saw three urgent, you know, emergencies today, a foreign body and a, a corneal abrasion and, and uh, actually two abrasions. Would you recommend I wear eye protection, even if it's just glasses, just clear glasses? I think that would be absolutely important. You know, some sort of eye protection, some, for, some sort of mask. If you could get an N95 mask, that would be a wonderful thing. You know, the conjunctiva is connected to the lacrimal system and the lacrimal system is connected to the nasopharyngeal stuff. And that is just pooling. I think we all saw that on Kiranet as far as what happens to the EAT surgeons that have to work in the nasopharyngeal area. So I would be as careful as you possibly could be while seeing patients, even non-red eyes, you know, just doing a mild conjunctival procedure. I spoke to one of the ophthalmologists in the Atlanta area yesterday. He was going to do a conjunctival lymphoma biopsy or removal. And the idea of what's urgent, what's emergent, and I said, are you really sure that's a good idea and that really can't wait? And um, I think a lot of stuff can wait. For us, our, our interesting group with it, we have uh, three retina specialists in our group and they're trying to extend 
the time between injections as far as they possibly can, but they're in there having stretched as far as they can giving injections. So no plan is perfect and people are gonna have to put themselves in harm's way and try to be as careful as they can be. I've been wearing those, I've been wearing those RX sight glasses from, from, uh, for the light adjustable lens patients. It fits perfectly. Gino, <laughs> what, what, what do you recommend that I wear? Uh, exactly what he just said or, and also what do I do when I get home? Cause my wife just told me, I just got home and she told me to take off all my scrubs uh, outside. She literally wanted to like ose me down. Is that a step too far? Or does, it, does this hang out on, the, on, on my scrubs too? Or what, what do I need to do? No, I think this virus survives on surfaces. I'm not exactly sure about scrubs, but, but it does survive on surfaces. So I'm coming in, when I came in from work, I put all my scrubs in the guest room and closed the door and it's gonna stay in there for a couple days. But I do think you should be very careful. I think you should wear an N95 mask if you can get it. I think goggles or glasses or protective eyewear of some sort is advisable. Um, I think the, the stories coming out of China, Iran, Italy, is that both ophthalmologists and ENT specialists are getting hit really hard with this disease. High percentage of, of folks, you know, we just heard Marguerite saying that there's four ophthalmologists on ventilators. So we are absolutely at risk. And I think we all at this point just need to assume everybody has it and, you know, isolate as much as possible. But every time you see an emergency patient, I think you should wear protection um, 100%. There's, there's been a couple of questions that have come through about telemedicine. Um, so if anyone has any specifics they'd like to share on that, on, on how it's working in their practice, please go ahead and do that. Um, but I'll also mention uh, we plan uh, probably either later this week or early next week, we're going to have a full, um, a full uh, session on telemedicine. So we're going to be trying to gather all the information, best practices, and do another one of these probably early next week on telemedicine. Uh, so stay tuned for more details. But anyone who it's working for right now, please share uh, how it's working and what platform you might be using. Um, I, I can address that a little bit. Uh, the, so this is Gino in Atlanta. Our, so our practice is Georgia Eye Partners. Um, our, our larger network of practices is called iSouth. And at, we're, our, our EMR is Nextech or ICP and Telechart Pro. Um, but the guidelines, we actually did a webinar on Saturday for all our doctors, and that is viewable. I, I can try and share that, Blake and Gary, with you because yeah. it, it really marches through it. But there's a couple of, of things. One is you, the, the restrictions have been relaxed, so you can use FaceTime um, to do a telemedicine visit now. If you're gonna code, if you're gonna do an anterior segment exam through FaceTime, you do your normal history and everything. You can look at a patient's subconj hemorrhage or conjunctivitis or whatever, and you can code either a 99213 or a, a 99212. There is another G code where if you don't do any video capability, let's say the patient does not have FaceTime or internet, you're just talking on the phone, it's um, and I might have the code a little bit wrong, but it's something like G2012, which, which is um, a telephone interaction. Um, and there is reimbursement in like the $14 range for that. But I mean, I think the point here is not the reimbursement. This is going to be a, 
rounding error on the normal work we do, but I do think patients knowing that you're checking in with them and telling them, we know you have glaucoma, you've been so stable, I think it's fine if we wait four months for your next and miss a checkup or whatever. I think that provides the patients a lot of relief. Uh, similar to what Alan said, within iSouth, we've kind of determined the retina folks and the glaucoma folks are really the have the most urgent and emergent patients, more so than the cataract folks. Obviously, there's a few corneal ulcers, but but we have retina doctors continuing to do injections and glaucoma folks continuing to see fragile patients. Uh, Gino, I'd appreciate if you could make that uh, available to us. Uh, I'll just tell you really quick, Gary, we're looking at uh, iCare Live. It's a website everybody can go to, iCare Live. It was designed by ophthalmologists and optometrists. There's also another one called doxy.me that, that's also very easy to use. And we're looking forward to launching that this week. So I know we need to kind of wrap up. Um, I, the last question, if we can just get a quick answer from each of you, um, and I've had so much anxiety myself around, around this whole thing and, and my family, and I'm not even COVID positive. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, with, with, with uh, the three of you that have been going through this, and luckily you're all feeling better now, but what's been that one thing that's kind of got you through? Because I, I, I got to imagine, and Matt, I'm going to start with you, but I've got to imagine this has been extremely stressful, a lot of anxiety. Um, you know, what, what's, what's sort of, I, can, I couldn't even imagine sort of, you know, the thoughts and everything going through your mind. Uh, what's gotten you through this tough time? Part of the problem is it's hard to be busy to not think about it since I can't work. Um, so for me, it's basically my, my three-year-old son, watching him grow and learn to speak and stuff like that. And just um, the joy that he is in my life has really given me uh, a positive feelings and um, hope for the future for sure. Alan? I guess it is, it's just time to decelerate. It's time to worry about big stuff, like getting through this and make sure all of our loved ones and the people that we know gets, gets through this, do everything that we can in order to make this smaller, in order for this epidemic to stay within the dimensions of our medical system. Listen to the epidemiologists who have been boring us for how many years during our, all of a sudden epidemiologists are relevant and just worry about surviving, getting to the next day and not worrying about all the little stuff. I think to a great extent, this puts everything into perspective. Definitely. Gina, take us home. Yeah, so um, all three of us on this call were lucky. Uh, I think that it's important to take care of yourself, you know, get sleep, get good nutrition, um, you know, get some exercise if you can go jogging where you are, because we are potentially at the beginning of, of a tough slog here. So I think, you know, just do all those basic things to try and um, help yourself uh, stay healthy. Well, those are, those are great comments. And um, I can't thank you each enough. Uh, you know, Blake and myself can't thank you enough for coming on today and giving us, you know, what it's like being a patient. Um, and it's so nice to, and reassuring for us to see, you know, colleagues doing well with this. And, um, you know, to, to you all, to everyone who's out there, I see so many friends who are chatting and, and uh, typing comments. You know, for me, you know, sort of being isolated from everyone is hard. And, and these kind of conversations really uh, reminds me of, of why I got into ophthalmology. Besides just the patient care aspect of it, it's really to try and help each other as a group, lift each other up and get through hard times together. And I'm really thankful to have you all uh, to do this with. So 
Um, on behalf of Blake and myself, really, really um, thrilled to, to be able to start this. Please look for updates. Uh, we're, we should be having another uh, video uh, conference later this week, and then maybe a couple um, each week as this goes on, you know, as, as, the, as news breaks and as uh, we all find ways to, to, uh, to treat ourselves and to take care of our practice. So stay tuned for more. Blake, any final words? That's it. Thank you, Podfather. And thank you to our three amazing panelists. You guys are awesome. Yeah, and uh, BMC and Avenue Live, thank you for putting this on. Uh, there's no sponsorship. This is just out of the goodness of their heart. So we really appreciate them uh, running in the background, all these things. So David Cox, everyone, the team, appreciate it. All right, until next time, guys, be well.